Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Kempton Bunton and the theft of Goya's Duke of Wellington. Now let's return to our story about Kempton Bunton. Less than two months after the Duke was restored to the National Gallery, on the evening of July 19, 1965, a tall, husky man, approximately 60 years old, walked into a public entrance to the new Scotland Yard building. He announced that he had information concerning the stolen portrait of the Duke of Wellington. When the man was referred to Detective Frank Andrews, he reiterated that he had knowledge to provide about the painting's theft. When Andrews asked what that information was, the man was succinct. You don't have to look any further. I am the man who took it. Andrews remained both calm and skeptical, crackpots falsely confessing to this and other major crimes a common occurrence. When he asked basic questions as to how and why the painting was stolen, the individual refused to provide any more information, other than to ask if the 5,000-pound reward was still in place. When asked again about fundamental details of the theft, he again refused to say anything substantive, other than to ask about the reward. He did produce a pad that he claimed he had used to write the ransom notes on, and Andrews figured that he better hand off any further inquiry to his supervisor, John Wisner, a chief inspector. Wisner didn't get much further than Andrews. The suspect seemingly fixated on whether a reward was still available. He finally elaborated that he thought someone was about to turn him in to collect the reward, and he wanted to beat this person to the punch so they couldn't claim it. While Wisner listened to this explanation, he remained skeptical. This was clearly an older, heavy-set individual who would find the arduous physical process of stealing the painting quite challenging, if not impossible. Wisner then got into a Python-esque exchange where the suspect demanded to know whether he was going to be arrested, and the detective kept telling him that he didn't believe he had stolen the painting. Wisner then excused himself to involve an investigator from the West End Central Police Station, responsible for the investigation. This individual, Sergeant William Johnson, arrived and essentially repeated previous conversations, but the man did offer more specifics as to the exact materials used in the parcel checked in at Birmingham, down to the six screws on the lid of the box containing the painting. When asked why he was coming forward, he reiterated that he felt he was about to be denounced for the reward and also alluded to having been previously detained three times for not paying his BBC television license and that he meant to acquire a ransom large enough to pay for pensioners to get this license for free, a comment so odd that it did not resonate with the detectives. Finally, the individual blurted out that even if he was arrested, the case would be thrown out because there was no intent to steal the painting permanently, the suspect alluding to such an analysis that appeared in the Times newspaper. He then pulled out a lengthy typed statement admitting that he had written all of the letters, had randomly hired an unknowing younger person to deposit the parcel in the Birmingham train station, repeated his assertion that no case could be prosecuted, and demanded to be released on bail. A second senior detective then subsequently arrived from the West End station, Ferguson Walker, who bluntly asked the suspect his name and address. When he refused to provide it, Walker decided to convey him to the West End station for further questions. The gentleman clearly knew a great deal of detail about the parcel, but his insistence that he be charged and his refusal to even identify himself indicated the strong possibility of a hoax or a prank of some sort. The interrogation continued at the West End station. The strange man again refused to identify himself, 
but upon emptying his pockets, his driver's license was collected, identifying a Kempton Bunton of Newcastle, which he confirmed was his name and address. Bunton then agreed to sign the statement that he prepared, and when asked if the police should notify anyone that he was there, he responded, quote, No, I don't know anyone who would be interested, unquote, a comment that actually meant a great deal more to the man than authorities realized. Mr. Bunton was then asked to provide two samples of handwriting from dictation. Walker followed up by formally issuing what is known in Great Britain as a caution, the equivalent of the American Miranda warning. Assuming that he was making progress in his attempt to get arrested, Bunton then began to answer specific questions about the theft itself, giving general answers, but generally confirming the speculation that the thief entered through the construction site, climbed the ladder to the lavatory, entered through the open window with no particular painting in mind, grabbed the first picture he could, and then retraced his steps. He also claimed that he carried the picture under his arm the entire time, and after successfully getting into the street, he went to the Thames Embankment, where he removed and destroyed the frame and threw it into the river. His last piece of information concerned the whereabouts of the painting after it went missing. It was secreted in the same spot for four years, in a cupboard in a bedroom in his home. With that, the interrogation concluded for the evening, and Kempton Bunton was taken to a holding cell. The next day, when the two detectives attempted to begin questioning him again, he invoked his right to remain silent and refused to answer any more questions. He was charged with larceny, eventually taken before a magistrate, and released on his own recognizance. His eventually successful application for legal aid also entered. On August 17th, a preliminary hearing was held in which the defense's attempt to get the case dismissed, a formality was rejected. Several police investigators testified, and the portrait of Wellington was actually also present in the courtroom, albeit with a new frame. A jury trial was scheduled for October, although it would not actually begin until November. Bunton's court-appointed counsel, Hugh Courts, realized that he was in over his head and sought assistance from a friend and attorney, Eric Crowther. But in the months leading up to the trial, both of these men were supplanted by a far more experienced lawyer, Jeremy Hutchinson. Hutchinson was married to Dame Peggy Ashcroft, and although he was going through a divorce, he was somewhat of a legal celebrity himself. He had been involved in the obscenity trial involving the D.H. Lawrence book, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and more recently represented Christine Keeler, the woman at the center of the Profumo affair, a government scandal so sensational it helped bring about the resignation of Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Hutchinson had two months to fashion a strategy in a case in which his client had emphatically admitted to stealing the painting. Luckily, Hutchinson and Bunton established an immediate rapport, which was important because the defendant could be difficult and might be unpredictable in a courtroom setting. In Kempton Bunton, Hutchinson was representing an individual who came from a world that was virtually the polar opposite of the sophisticated, upper-class niche that the barrister inhabited. But it would be important to determine exactly who he was and what that life was like. Today, we know a great deal more about the life of Kempton Bunton than we should, because besides the many menial jobs that he had, he also was a prolific writer of plays, stories, a novel, and most importantly, an autobiography, written after his legal travail involving the Duke. Unfortunately, and this may have contributed to the alienation that ultimately precipitated his involvement in the theft of the painting, none of these works were ever published. But his memoir gave great insight into his background and mindset. Even his unusual name required an explanation. Bunton's mother named him Kempton Cannon Bunton after a British jockey, Kempton Cannon, who won the Epsom Derby only days before her son's birth, June 14, 1904, a victory she financially backed. When asked about his unusual name, Bunton also always replied, it's Kempton, as in Kempton Park Racecourse, as if to underscore his interest in such an edgy activity. Kempton's background also indicates a heritage involving dubious morality. His father literally was a turf accountant, a polite British euphemism for a bookie, 
but did not settle on this occupation until after marrying the housemaid in his father's home after he impregnated her, an action that meant banishment from the family. Eventually, Bunton's father joined the army and then settled down to taking odd jobs in the neighborhood of Biker, near Newcastle. He finally hit his stride when he became the local bookmaker, taking bets daily and racking up huge profits that unfortunately seemed to have attracted attention from other women. Kempton remembers his parents' marriage as quite stormy, his mother occasionally assaulting his father with crockery and he responding by cutting up her wardrobe with a razor. Probably financed by his father, Kempton's mother took over a tavern 20 miles north of Newcastle, and at the age of 12, he was installed there as a bartender, with no formal education to speak of previously or subsequently. Even then, his work habits suffered from his predictable termination from whatever odd job he eventually acquired, usually in a matter of days, behavior that also marked his entire adult life. He also attempted to cut corners, perpetually formulating some gambling scheme that was sure to bring him a fortune, but usually only ensured that whatever wages he did scrape up were quickly dissipated. Although probably cited for what he thought were amusement purposes, Bunton recounts numerous incidents involving petty thefts, bar brawls, and mild run-ins with police, many during an ill-fated migration to Australia, attempted to possibly take advantage professionally in a change of scenery. This attempt failed, Bunton barely able to acquire the funds necessary to crawl back to Newcastle. Upon his return, the only change was his newfound interest in writing, really only a hobby, as in his own words, none of his efforts ever got published. Now married to a woman of similar economic background, Dorothy Bunton, he returned to sporadic employment, the couple eking out a wartime living. His efforts usually involved truck driving of some sort, and even in the seemingly innocuous position, Bunton managed to entangle himself in typically dysfunctional behavior. Pulled over by a policeman, who mistakenly thought he might be stealing lumber and loading it into his van, instead the cop discovered some crated hens that Bunton had legitimately purchased. This turned into a court summons for carrying livestock in a van not appropriately licensed for that purpose and wasting petrol, wartime rationing, forbidding the use of fuel for such illicit purposes. Bunton was, perhaps justifiably, outraged. Once found guilty, he refused to pay the six-pound fine, and despite a lengthy process in which he was given every opportunity to pay up, he refused, earning himself a brief time out in the Durham Penitentiary. Next, seven months as a truck driver for a milk cooperative, fired after an argument with the boss. Then a brewery delivery driver, fired after an arrest for not paying his fine in the hen incident. Subsequently, a truck driver for a fruit merchant, which lasted only weeks. This behavior interspersed with trips to dog and horse tracks, where sometimes he also attempted bookmaking and certainly gambled. Somehow, Bunton was able to keep a roof over his, his wife's, and now his five children's heads, possibly because his wife's employment as a housemaid was much more consistent. A casual regard for the law and an emphatic disdain for bureaucratic authority denote Bunton's worldview from page one. But a family tragedy also added to his generally bleak outlook. When his daughter was killed in a bicycle accident in 1948, he writes, I remember bitterly and silently cursing God. If there were such, he must be a demon god to have allowed this thing to happen. On it went. In Bunton's case, he seemed to be developing a righteous attitude in which his failings were the result of a systemic injustice. When he was fired from his position in a bakery for pointing out what he thought was mistreatment of a fellow Pakistani laborer, it only underlined his belief that his mediocrity in life really stemmed from the forces of evil which continually conspired against him. Box wrapper, chimney sweep, cab driver, all attempted briefly, all resulting in terminations or resignation. It didn't change, and neither did his imagined career in letters, a novella, radio plays, television scripts, all rejected. Even this generated bitterness. Interspersed between various jobs, I continued writing and crying at the rubbish which has made the grade. 
and this bitterness seemed to become focused on an issue which became an obsession over time. Kempton describes meeting an old-age pensioner who complained that he had a television but couldn't even watch it because he couldn't pay the BBC user fee. After World War II, consumers were forced annually to pay to watch the BBC, which subsidized non-commercial television. But by the mid-50s and the advent of commercial television, viewers still had to pay the fee, even if they had no interest in watching the BBC. And the fee, at £4.1960, $130 today, was not insignificant. For Kempton Bunton, the path was clear. He would lead a national uprising against the injustice of the elderly being deprived of access to the telly, something he described as a tyrannical law. If the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, Bunton's first foray into revolution began with a disconnection of the circuits that allowed him to receive the BBC, allowing access only to ITV, Britain's commercial network. He then sent a letter to the appropriate agency informing them of this deed, stating, As my set can only receive ITV, I see no reason to pay the BBC. The predictably prompt visit from members of the Postal Authority, who were charged with addressing this sort of behavior, only impressed upon these officials Bunton's resolute attitude concerning non-payment. The predictable summons was issued, but Bunton was shrewd enough to alert any and all media to his upcoming hearing, and surprisingly, he received extensive coverage. Although the magistrate was unmoved by Bunton's passionate criticism of the fee and its effects on the elderly and fined him two pounds, the crusader vowed to accept a prison sentence instead of paying the fine. The magistrate gave him seven days to pay up and dismissed him from the courtroom. Outside, Bunton continued his pronouncements for photographers and journalists, eventually receiving media attention in papers as prominent as the London Times, which mentioned his defiance and willingness to serve jail time. Bunton showed up for a second summons over his failure to pay the fine again, he refused. Again, the court, probably loath to encourage even more publicity, avoided sending him to jail, merely giving him more time to pay. Bunton did not budge, and after a third hearing, the magistrate gave him a week to pay or do 13 days in jail. Again, he received coverage, the Times faithfully following the story. Despite the coverage, there was no legion of fellow protesters leading a torchlight parade to Bunton's doorstep. He did his 13 days, emerged from jail, and immediately vowed in another letter to continue his protest. This time, the magistrate lowered the boom with a 10-pound fine or 56 days in jail. Bunton took the 56 days. One must have wondered how Mrs. Bunton was handling the situation, but even her husband had some limit to his quixotic endeavors. He had initially stated that his protests would last for one year, and when a year transpired without a stampede of protesters overrunning Parliament to right this terrible injustice, he caved in. Responding to a summons concerning his latest non-payment of his BBC fee, Bunton threw himself on the mercy of the court, which responded with an offer of a 10-pound fine or one day in jail, and a promise to suspend the revolution permanently. Bunton meekly agreed and took the night in jail, of course. It was about this time that Bunton, having returned to a modest-paying position as a bookmaker's clerk, was confronted with the uproar over Goya's Duke of Wellington. While his countrymen were in a fury over the thought of losing the painting, to an American no less, Bunton had a predictably contrarian approach, incensed that the nation would invest £140,000 in a painting while the aged couldn't even watch television. Bunton read up on the life and career of the Duke and inwardly came to believe that Wellington was actually unworthy of his historical esteem, another overrated tyrant who benefited militarily from the numerous deaths of lower-class people he then politically oppressed. Contrarian indeed. And so, as the plot to create a charitable fund for television licenses began to crystallize, it seemed obvious that there was no better object to be exploited than that of not only a painting revered by the upper crust of the art world, but a portrait of a man who only, in Bunton's mind, had victimized the poor and downtrodden. Bunton's memoir might have remained a mundane study of a lifetime of failure, except for his account of stealing the painting, 
one of the unique accomplishments in the annals of art theft, if nothing else. He claimed to have hitchhiked to central London and the National Gallery, a museum he had never entered. Initially, casing the location, he was intimidated by the security protecting the artworks, but was encouraged by the construction site and scaffolding near an open window. Ostensibly to find out about employment opportunities, he chatted up a guard who offered valuable information about the activation of the security system that was coordinated with the cleaners' activities, indicating that the system was not always operating. He then claimed to have returned to Newcastle to prepare a specific plan of attack. He claimed to have purchased a large overcoat as part of a disguise, and even a toy gun to be able to bluff his way out of any confrontation. The one major obstacle he faced was the lack of a getaway automobile, but Bunton stated that he returned to London anyway on August 21st, a Sunday, intent on burglarizing the gallery. He spent time drinking in a pub, claiming that he almost gave up on the whole caper when he decided that perhaps he could find a car with a key in the ignition and borrow it. Supposedly, he suddenly noticed an individual pulling up and parking in his vicinity, the man clearly intoxicated and careless enough to leave the keys in the ignition and the door partially open. After the man disappeared through a doorway, Bunton quickly jumped behind the wheel and made his way to the National Gallery. He walked around the streets near the museum for a while, trying to muster the courage to go through with the heist. After a few nips off of a pint of whiskey he had in his pocket, at about 4 a.m., he went for it. To get over the wall into the construction yard, he climbed on top of his car and managed to clamber over into the interior courtyard, a clothesline around his waist and gloves his only professional tools. He moved very carefully, occasionally stopping for minutes at a time if he heard any noise. When he finally got to the area near the open window, he even heard the flush of a toilet indicating the presence at even this early hour of human activity. With great difficulty, he maneuvered the ladder to as close to the window as possible and began to climb. When he got to the top of the ladder, he pushed the window up even further, allowing for his entrance into what turned out to be a toilet stall. After carefully listening for a few minutes to make sure there was no one in the immediate vicinity, he left the men's room and quickly made his way to the stairway that led directly to the Goya. Because museum officials had placed the painting prominently in a front vestibule, the painting was the closest to Bunton when he entered the building. He quickly removed it from the easel and headed back to the lavatory, successfully making it without detection. He then secured the clothesline around the painting in a manner which allowed him to lower it to the ground, the actual painting facing up to avoid damage. This also allowed Bunton to climb down the ladder without having to hold on to the painting. He quickly made his way through the courtyard, scaled the exterior walls, and successfully made it out onto St. Martin Street, although he did turn an ankle, lowering himself into the street. He placed the painting in the car, face down, luckily because eventually near his rented room, he was detained by a policeman who flagged him down, merely to tell him he was going the wrong way. After returning the car back to the vicinity of where he borrowed it, as Bunton was many things but not a car thief, and once successfully back in his room, Kempton prepared the painting for transport, taping poster board on it and removing the frame, which he felt was too cumbersome. As to what he did with it, Bunton's story changed repeatedly, but in this version of events, he claims to have broken it up and left the random pieces in various refuse dumps. Stunned by the hysterical reaction to the theft of the painting and hearing that all train and bus depots were being carefully scrutinized for anything that remotely resembled the artwork, Bunton decided to head home after hiding his treasure in a cupboard in his room. When the initial wave of publicity ebbed, he returned to London and successfully retrieved the Goya. Upon his arrival in Newcastle, he began the letter-writing campaign that he hoped would provide numerous elderly Britons with the joy of television. But that was another pipe dream that vanished, leaving Bunton to subsequently face a legal process that had potentially very serious consequences. Prior to the trial itself, numerous depositions were taken by the prosecution involving police officers, National Gallery officials, gallery guards, and even the foreman of the construction yard. 
Bunton was also methodically deposed, and he responded to questions about the theft. The only fundamental information that differed from his initial interrogations was that he fully intended on specifically stealing the Goya, contradicting his earlier claim that any painting would suffice. This change was crucial to proving that Bunton's true intent was not theft for personal gain, but charity, specifically related to the £140,000 purchase price of the Duke. Although Bunton was initially only charged with one count of larceny, the prosecution submitted an indictment that was much more severe. He was now charged with two counts of larceny, one for the painting, one for the frame, that was never recovered, and one charge of menacing for submitting letters to Lord Robbins demanding money. In addition, he was charged with creating a public nuisance by depriving citizens of their right to see the painting and with additional menacing, implying the potential threat to permanently keep or even destroy the artwork in his letter to the mirror. Breaking out the frame and the portrait theft charges separately and prosecuting Bunton for inconveniencing the public certainly seemed like a case of overcharging. However, the prosecution might have been concerned about a jury's reaction to an oddball like Bunton, especially where charity was supposedly involved, and they may have wished to underline the gravity of the offense. On November 4, 1965, in the Central Criminal Court, Kempton Bunton's trial began before Judge Carl Arvold, a distinguished jurist, eventually knighted for his public service. The court was known by its nickname, Old Bailey, the site of numerous famous and sensational court cases involving many famous defendants. Its marble floors, ornate decor, and fine wooden walls evoke the image of a British courtroom popularized throughout the world in film and television. A jury of ten men and two women were seated, and the prosecutor, Edward Cusson, began to present his case, a fairly routine process, as the defendant did not deny removing the painting. On day two, however, Bunton's attorney surprisingly requested a hearing to rule on the dismissal of three of the five charges. This was unusual because, even if it is also routine, the defense typically waits until the prosecution has concluded its case before requesting such a dismissal. Carl Arvold, perhaps already suspecting that he was involved in an atypical case, cheerfully granted the hearing with the comment, I have no doubt that Mr. Hutchinson is going to throw the books at me. Never one to miss an opportunity, Jeremy Hutchinson responded, My lord, with all due respect, I shall present them to you. The jury was removed, and a two-hour presentation ensued, with Hutchinson citing voluminous case law, commentaries, and rulings involving especially the public nuisance charge, some involving proceedings dating back hundreds of years. Although the prosecutor attempted to parry much of this material with points of his own, he seemed clearly overmatched, even in answering basic questions from Arvold. In the end, the jurist split the difference. He threw out count five, the public nuisance charge, but allowed the menacing charges, counts three and four, to stand. Hutchinson had spent most of his time on arguing over count five in any case. He most likely did not expect to actually get anywhere on the menacing charges. The prosecution continued presenting its case painstakingly and repetitively, offering testimony from police who initially questioned Bunton, establishing that he did indeed steal the painting. But a fingerprint expert from Scotland Yard was grilled intensively, the man emerging after Hutchinson's cross-examination as condescending, asserting that he was above reproach and even possibly unethical. However, Hutchinson's performance was not flawless. His stubborn insistence on trying to establish that the painting was not actually a genuine Goya or possibly even a fake was repeatedly rejected by Arvold as irrelevant. The trial continued predictably in the courtroom, but after the first week, something explosive occurred externally. On November 11th, a woman by the name of Pamela Smith visited the West End Central Station. She requested to meet with the detectives who initially investigated the theft of the Goya. She explained to them that she was the former girlfriend of Kenneth Bunton, Kempton's son. Almost three years after the theft, Kenneth revealed to her that actually it was his younger brother, John, also known as Jackie, who stole the painting. In a lengthy statement that she signed, she also maintained that three of the Buntons had participated in the heist. 
that the theft was really an attempt to get insurance money that they would split and that Kempton Bunton couldn't have cared less about BBC licenses. She also said that it was Jackie Bunton who returned the painting to the Birmingham railway station, the alleged Mr. Bloxham. Finally, she explained that Kempton Bunton's current plan was to do his time if convicted and then sell his story to the media. Although she agreed to sign the statement, Pamela Smith, who had since broken up with Kenneth Bunton, absolutely refused to testify, claiming that he was violently abusive and would attack her. Although there was reason to doubt some of the secondary aspect of Ms. Smith's information, one element was clear-cut and relevant to the ongoing trial. The prosecution would have to be notified of the allegation that some other different individual had stolen the painting, and they in turn notified the defense of this new information. After this extraordinary revelation, the judge adjourned the case to the following Monday, November 16th, sent the jury home with the information that new evidence had been presented and allowed both sides to decide how they wanted to proceed. When informed by his attorney as to what the delay was about, Kempton Bunton decried Pamela Smith as a, quote, dangerous lunatic, unquote, merely intent on the reward money. The 5,000 pounds offered for the conviction of whoever stole the painting. In the end, for different reasons, both sides decided to proceed as if Ms. Smith had never come forward. The defense felt that they had a good shot at an acquittal, and they knew that Kempton Bunton certainly did not want a mistrial that would then involve the prosecution of his son. The prosecution could have asked for a mistrial, started all over again with a new jury, and then pursued John Jackie Bunton, but that would require using evidence that was possibly hearsay and they would have looked ridiculous after parading dozens of witnesses who implicated Kempton Bunton in front of a jury, only to then attempt to implicate a completely different person with the same witnesses. On Monday, the jury returned and the trial proceeded as if nothing had happened. The next major aspect of the trial concerned the potential testimony of Kempton Bunton. In most cases, the defense is reluctant to put the accused on the stand, but here, with so much writing on the interpretation of why the defendant did what he did and whether or not he was sincere, there wasn't much doubt as to the appropriate decision. Additionally, Kempton Bunton had spent his whole life in search of a national platform, and now in the most unexpected fashion, he had one. No one would be able to deny him this opportunity. From his first moments on the stand, the strategy of the defense became clear. After getting Bunton to state his name and address, Hutchinson asked, Mr. Bunton, did you ever intend to steal this picture in the sense of permanently depriving the gallery of it? No, was his answer. Did you ever intend to make any menaces or demand any money by menaces from anybody? Again, the answer was negative. According to a strict interpretation of British law at the time, a theft only occurs if the individual taking an item has no intention of returning it at some future date. Hutchinson then spent time discussing Kempton Bunton's employment history, especially emphasizing that the defendant had stopped working after a frightful accident involving a truck that permanently ended such employment. Hutchinson seemed to be attempting to elicit sympathy. Like any good attorney, he left out some of his clients' more dubious work habits. He also got Bunton to emphasize repeatedly that the defendant never had any intention of keeping the painting, that he always intended to return it, and under no circumstances would he have kept it or destroyed it. Figuring that the prosecution would address potentially threatening language in the ransom notes, Hutchinson reviewed that language in detail and got Bunton to deny or minimize any such language as a threat to never return the painting. Counsel for the defense also reviewed the obvious care that Bunton went to in protecting the painting, especially the elaborate wrapping of the parcel left in the Birmingham train station. Hopefully the jury would be sympathetic to Bunton, who so far seemed sincere and more of a bumbler rather than a sinister criminal. Then it was Prosecutor Cusson's turn to attempt to paint Bunton in a completely different light. Immediately, Cusson began to ask questions that incorporated information that came from Pamela Smith. While the jury did not know this, Cusson was probably trying to rattle Bunton and force him to perjure himself if, in fact, Ms. Smith's information was true. Cusson asked if Bunton had told the entire story about the theft or if he had had any accomplices, and the defendant emphatically stated that he did not. 
Cusson asked if anyone knew about the crime before his arrest. Even Bunton had admitted to police that he was afraid of being turned in by someone who knew about the theft. Bunton responded by admitting to telling the story to a drinking buddy, but added he wasn't afraid of this person coming forward, but the potential for this individual to tell someone else who might. When asked to identify this individual, Bunton refused. Unlike a witness who could possibly be held in contempt for failure to answer questions, he was a criminal defendant and had the right to selectively answer or not answer any questions as he chose. But, for some reason, the prosecutor chose to focus on this individual, asking minute details about when and where such an admission occurred, again perhaps thinking that Bunton might say something incriminating, ridiculous, or provably false. And several times Bunton did say things that were contradictory. He described his drinking buddy as a trusted friend of 15 years sworn to secrecy, but then Bunton turned himself in, fearing he would be denounced? But Cusson let such weak testimony pass without aggressively pointing out some fundamentally preposterous aspects of Bunton's testimony. And Bunton's adamant refusal to name this individual, responding by saying he did not want to involve an innocent person in a potentially compromising situation, almost had a certain honor among thieves aspect, which might possibly be very endearing to a jury. Additionally, Kempton Bunton had a spontaneous manner of testifying that incorporated unintentionally hilarious comments that convulsed the entire courtroom, including the judge, with raucous laughter. When asked if he had ever told his wife about the theft, Bunton replied emphatically and without hesitation, No, then the whole world would know if I told her. When Cusson attempted to challenge Bunton's assertion that he always intended to return the Goya, Bunton was practically exasperated. Absolutely, it was no good to me otherwise. I wouldn't hang it in my own kitchen if it was my own picture. The comment again bringing down the house, an unemployed cab driver deriding one of the art world's most esteemed paintings. Again and again, Bunton's oddball demeanor and ability to stonewall the prosecution, not allowing Cusson to portray him in a diabolical light. When Cusson finally finished his cross-examination, Hutchinson did engage in some mop-up redirect, re-emphasizing Bunton's lack of menace and intent to return the painting, no matter what. But the judge suddenly got involved in an unanticipated way, asking Bunton questions but in a manner that seemed to undermine this unwavering resolve. Arvold asked Bunton if it was actually the accidental conversation with his drinking buddy that prompted him to suddenly return the work. Bunton denied that this was the case, but the judge's intercession was potentially damaging. After this unexpected development, Cusson had no further questions, and Kempton Bunton was finished with his testimony. Only two other witnesses remained. John Jackie Bunton, who testified that the typewriter admitted into evidence was the typewriter used by his father, and Philip Hendy, who briefly testified about the painting's frame, its value, and the price of a replacement. A wanted-for-questioning sketch had circulated of the infamous Mr. Bloxham, and it did bear a strong resemblance to John Bunton, but no one picked up on that at the time. After the testimony of Hendy, most notable because Goya's artwork was again present in the courtroom, only closing arguments remained. In both of these arguments, Hutchinson and Cusson focused on the technical issue of an acquittal, if Bunton always intended to return the painting. Hutchinson knew that the judge's intervention in pointing out that it was possibly only Bunton's anxiety about getting turned in that precipitated the painting's return was potentially damaging. He stressed that the painting was returned two months before Bunton turned himself in, and his anxiety was over preventing the reward and not the painting. Cusson used the same set of circumstances to attempt to convince the jury that it was proof that Bunton had not intended to return the painting. It would be up to the jury to decide which perspective to accept. It was at this point that the judge typically charged the jury with language that was a boilerplate formality. But in this case, Arvold, in reviewing the facts, seemed to be attempting to go beyond merely a restatement. He also did this carefully to seemingly avoid any opportunity for an appeals court to reverse a verdict in the case. The judge seemed to believe that Bunton could not have possibly committed the crime considering his height, weight, and age, but what the jurist's motivation was remained unclear. If the jury was persuaded, they would have to acquit the defendant. 
a man who admitted that he had stolen the painting. Perhaps Arvold felt that between Bunton's obvious physical challenges and the information provided by Pamela Smith, it was clear that the wrong man was on trial. In any event, at 12.10 p.m. on November 16, 1965, he discharged the jury to begin deliberations. The only suspense occurred an hour later when the jurors were brought back to the courtroom after they asked for specific definitions concerning the larceny laws. They then returned to deliberations, announcing that they had reached a verdict at about 3.30 p.m. On the counts involving the theft of the painting, menacing involving Lord Robbins, and menacing involving the Daily Mirror, Kempton Bunton was acquitted. But he was convicted of stealing the frame, vindicating the decision to split these two charges. After brief statements concerning sentencing, which was immediate subsequent to any guilty verdict, both Ferguson Walker, the police official charged with providing the convicted defendant's criminal background, and Hutchinson, who made a statement asking for leniency as a result of Bunton's age, the fact that the painting was returned and that the frame was not something that was relatively valuable, Kempton Bunton declined his opportunity to address the court. Arvold then began a lengthy sentencing statement. His remarks implied that he was rather upset by the technicality in the law that allowed Kempton Bunton to escape conviction for the painting's theft. He added that even if an individual believes that he has the best of motives, quote, creeping into public galleries in order to extract pictures of value so you can use them for your own purposes has got to be discouraged, unquote. As the courtroom braced for what seemed to be a preamble to a lengthy and severe punishment, Arvold then concluded with, Taking all of these matters into account, I can only sentence you to a short term of imprisonment of three months. Reaction from the public varied. The museum and art establishment was appalled that such a lenient sentence was imposed for the theft of such an important work of art. Media opinion ranged from amusement over the technicality that got Bunton off to finding a prison sentence for essentially stealing a frame unduly harsh. This loophole was removed in 1968 when the law concerning larceny was amended with intent removed from the legal equation. Kempton Bunton served his sentence mostly in a minimum security prison, avoiding any work assignments and spending as much time as possible reading in his cell. In the immediate aftermath of his prison term, he resolved to begin his autobiography. Eventually written, it concluded with his emergence from prison. He corresponded frequently with all of his defense attorneys, for years sending postcards with pictures of the Duke of Wellington and an update. But the autobiography, and even a novel that he subsequently completed, went nowhere, and none of his literary efforts have ever been published. Bunton began a slow fade back to complete obscurity, with the exception of newspaper accounts in June of 1969 that claimed that another individual had come forward and confessed that it was he, not Kempton Bunton, who stole the Duke. Further accounts indicated that both Kempton Bunton and John Jackie Bunton were interviewed by police. Kempton Bunton even adding cryptically, I know the man involved. He is the man who did it. The new confession and notes from the interview were forwarded to, to the London prosecutor's office, but nothing came of it, and just as quickly the story receded. Kempton Bunton still generally accepted as the thief who stole Goya's Wellington. Kempton Bunton died in April of 1976, by that time so obscure that even today the exact date of his death is unknown. He spent his last years living on an old age pension and government assistance, the American equivalent of welfare. His wife had already died in 1974, and although they were estranged when he was arrested, they probably reunited and were still officially married at the time of his death. But not even Kempton's passing ended the speculation about his actual role in the theft. The National Gallery has a policy of releasing official documents 30 years after their composition, and in 1996, it released an official statement mentioning the likely innocence of Kempton Bunton, based on a letter written by Philip Hendy to Lord Robbins two weeks after the trial concluded. In the letter, Hendy stated that it was his belief, and the belief of most of law enforcement, that Kempton Bunton, based on his weight and age, could not have possibly stolen the painting, and it was most likely carried out by at least one, 
and possibly two much more physically fit individuals. It would take 16 years, but in 2012, after a journalist filed a Freedom of Information Act request, Britain's Department of Public Prosecutions released a previously confidential file that indicated that it was Kempton Bunton's son, Jackie Bunton, who had actually stolen the painting. Once his identity was public and the DPP made it clear that it had no interest in prosecuting Jackie Bunton, Kempton's son revealed the actual facts concerning the theft of the Goya. He came forward for several reasons, including ongoing guilt over the fact that his father had taken the blame for the theft of the painting, and Jackie wanted to set the record straight. In fact, as early as 1969, the true identity of the Goya thief was absolutely revealed to law enforcement. On May 30, 1969, John and Kenneth Bunton were pulled over while John was driving a stolen car. As Kenneth already had a similar conviction, Jackie agreed to take sole responsibility, and while being questioned by Leeds police, he realized that he would eventually be fingerprinted and his prints might potentially incriminate him in the theft of the Goya. Already guilty over his father publicly taking responsibility for the Wellington theft, Jackie willingly claimed to be the actual thief. When asked why he let his father take the rap for the theft of the painting, Jackie maintained that his father ordered him to, a not unlikely assertion. When his brother Kenneth was asked the same thing, he gave the exact same answer. In effect, Kempton Bunton perjured himself throughout the trial to save his son, Jackie. When Kenneth was questioned in detail to attempt to corroborate the confession, police also discovered another interesting nugget that Kenneth Bunton was not only reunited and living with Pamela Smith, but that aside from only three days when she returned to her former husband, she had been with Kenneth for the entire time. This, in fact, explained her reason for contacting police, this act occurring around the time that she was experiencing major difficulty in her relationship with Kenneth. Unfortunately, the couple did not live happily ever after. Kenneth died of a heart attack in 1973, and Pamela Smith died a year later. Leeds police forwarded the information concerning Jackie's confession to the DPP, but after a lengthy investigation, the matter was dropped. After the 1969 arrest and much delay, Jackie Bunton's attorney finally received a brief letter merely stating that his client would not be prosecuted for the Wellington theft. Why exactly this occurred was also never specifically revealed, but most likely official embarrassment over the entire incident and reluctance to revisit an obviously botched prosecution played a major role in the decision. There was no formal announcement of this development, and the media never followed up. Also in 2012, after the release of the DPP's confidential files, Jackie Bunton gave additional details about the incident publicly for the first time. Much of the actual theft process exactly matches Kempton Bunton's own confession with some fundamental differences. As a 19-year-old, Jackie felt bad that his father had become a subject of neighborhood ridicule after his BBC campaign went nowhere. He also believed mistakenly that a stolen painting could be redeemed for insurance, in which an insurer pays off a smaller percentage of a painting's value for a quick return, no questions asked, which is not the case for uninsured government property. After listening to his father rail about the cost of the painting and the government's misplaced priorities with regard to the aged and the BBC, Jackie resolved to do something. Telling his family that he was going to London to find work, he quickly got a job at a hotel, spending his off hours casing the museum. It was Jackie Bunton who chatted up a guard and discovered the early morning alarm gap to allow for the cleaners, and the theft did occur in the early morning hours. And Jackie did not merely borrow a car. A skilled mechanic, he stole one from a garage. The rest of the heist went pretty much as described by Kempton Bunton, but Jackie did not even employ a clothesline to secure the painting. He carried it under his arm the entire time, even when scaling the wall back into the street. The lack of any damage to the Goya, practically miraculous. Upon return to his rented room, he did actually remove the frame, hacksawed it into pieces, and threw it into the Thames. His father's eventual lies about being unable to remember his rented room's location where the frame was hidden in a cupboard, probably an attempt at avoiding legal responsibility. Jackie then called his father and informed him that he had stolen a painting, and Kempton, having heard the news about the Goya theft, put two and two together. 
Eventually, the painting was moved from London to the Bunton's bedroom cupboard, where it remained for the next four years. One wonders why Jackie Bunton would be so forthcoming in 2012, and the answer to that is straightforward. His son, Christopher Bunton, had always been fascinated by his grandfather's notoriety and felt much of the true story had never been told. With his father Jackie's blessing and his grandfather's entire collection of memoirs, writings, and journalism, he completed a screenplay and hoped that publicity would help him raise commercial interest in the story. Although he initially experienced the same reaction that his grandfather received, Chris was eventually able to interest experienced film producers in the story itself. It took a while, but in 2020, filming began on The Duke, starring Helen Mirren as Dorothy Bunton and Jim Broadbent as Kempton Bunton. Although delayed by COVID, it was released worldwide in 2022, an endearing and mostly accurate dramedy that has been well-received. Christopher Bunton was listed as an executive producer for his efforts in producing the film. And Jackie Bunton, as of 2021, 80 years old, he is still alive and living alone in his modest Newcastle flat after the death of his wife a few years ago. The newfound interest in the incident has generated some attention, and he is aware of the film, obviously, but the former art thief declines any formal interviews. Sixty years later, he did offer, These things are best left in the past. Everything that needed to be said was said in the court case all those years ago. I don't get involved anymore. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Kempton Bunton. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Kidnapped, The Incredible True Story of the Art Theft That Shocked a Nation by Alan Hirsch and the Daily Mail June 14, 2021 newspaper article entitled The Man Who Really Stole Goya's Priceless Duke of Wellington by Kevin McDonald. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.